Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of November 2nd, 2020. A few days after the Chicago White Sox made quite the scene hiring Tony LaRussa, As their new manager, we now enter the next phase of Major League Baseball's 2020-2021 offseason, the official opening of free agency. Unlike other sports, especially the NBA, we don't expect a lot of activity right away in Major League Baseball. As a matter of fact, we may not see a lot of free agent activity in November seeing as how the general manager meetings will be virtual and the cancellation of the winter meetings, a place where a lot of business got accomplished because teams and agents got a chance to meet face-to-face. Now, they'll have to meet via Zoom. On this episode, we'll take a look at the official free agency list and pick out some names that we think the White Sox could possibly target. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Before we get started with the free agency talk, we do have some heartbreaking news to share. Jim Osborne was one of our good friends and a good friend to many that have interacted with him on Southside Sox and Sox Machine over the years. Better known as Little Jimmy, unfortunately passed away this past weekend at the age of 69. And I'll start first. Jimmy loved baseball, the White Sox, and especially the Major League Baseball draft. And he's been such a great help with our draft coverage and trying to educate fellow White Sox fans on other amateur players that would be worthwhile for the team to target. And one of 
my last conversations with Jimmy was about the upcoming 2021 draft class and how deep the upcoming high school shortstop class was. And this is something that would happen frequently while I was doing my homework, watching film, texting, emailing other prospect writers who went to showcases to see certain players. I don't know how Jim, but Jimmy just had a knack of emailing me about that particular prospect I was researching on and it just, it was incredible. I would look up a player, watch the video, look at my Gmail account, new email. And it's from Jimmy asking me about my thoughts about this draft prospect. It was like he had a bug installed on my laptop that whenever I was doing any (laughs) type of draft research, it would alert him and I would shortly get an email. The last time that happened was about Marcelo Mayer. He he's a very talented prep shortstop from San Diego. I knew he would be a Jimmy pick because Marcelo Mayer does it all. And he's a prep shortstop and Jimmy loved prep shortstops. And I figured hmm. it would be nonstop to hear from Jimmy until next July, hearing about how the white Sox must take Mayer. And, and now that won't happen. And It is heartbreaking and it is sad. And every time I do draft research, I'm going to miss my emails from Jimmy and I'm going to miss meeting up with him at White Sox games and at our Sox machine brewery meetups, especially out at Downers Grove uh, with his loud laugh and just as loud personality sharing stories about famous people that I barely know about, but the stories were always entertaining and uh, we really lost a good one this weekend, Jim. And I know that you have great memories of little Jimmy, too. Did uh, did Jimmy call uh, Mayor a good-looking kid? <laughs> you know it. <laughs> because that was the highest praise he leveled upon any prospect was, good-looking kid. Like, that was the uh, like the last sentence of a... That was his stamp of approval, was that phrase. But, yeah, you, when he mentioned that uh, Jimmy was 69 and I saw that in the obituary, it's like... You know, it made sense in a way, like he didn't seem, uh, you know, I guess he, with him, with his personality, like an age didn't really come up. You know, I think in terms of the stories he had and the number of places he worked over the years, he was probably about 130. (laughs) But in terms of like his personality and just his, uh, you know, his exuberance and his uh, ebullience and just the way he uh, seemed to just take a lot of joy in both White Sox baseball and at meetups, just people around him conversing, like... You know, he was probably like, you know, a third of his age. Just he, he seemed to never get tired of uh, baseball, even though the White Sox can sometimes be very tiresome. Like he just always had a fresh approach. And one of the things uh, I liked most about him was that he never, like when he was arguing about players, he tended to argue or he was most adamant about arguing for players he liked. Like, you know, a lot of guys will say, you know, determine positions or determine futures by saying, well, this guy sucks, or this guy's not cutting it, this guy can't hit lefties, this guy uh, doesn't have fastball velocity, doesn't have a third pitch. We, we we talk about what players can't do. Jimmy always approached it a different way. Like, he would argue for a guy saying, or he, he would argue for a position saying what this guy can do. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of negativity in the way he discussed things. He always either saw the best things in a prospect or just decided to look at the ways the White Sox could solve a problem in the best way. He never seemed to, there wasn't a whole lot of negativity in his speech about baseball, it just seemed to, the joy seemed to radiate from him. And yeah, he was, he was always fun to have around meetups. I remember uh, 
one year he brought his two uh, two twin boys who he's very proud of and um, you know my my heart goes out to them and his family uh yeah it's it's a big loss and you know he's he's a big spirit and uh you know i, I think we're all gonna have to do a little bit to uh, make up for that spirit yeah we will miss you jimmy and we've included a link to jimmy's obituary on socksmachine.com if you are interested in leaving a message for the family and the family's also setting up a uh if you want to plant a tree in jimmy's honor as well again we'll have that information on socksmachine.com and i should say that if zach collins wins the backup catcher job and is a catcher fixture for the white Sox, either starter or backup for the foreseeable future then i know where i heard it from first right exactly and if the white Sox draft marcelo mayer in july we'll know that's Jimmy's guy. So good looking kid. Good looking kid. The Chicago White Sox did make some news outside of just hiring Tony La Russa this past week. They declined picking up the options for Edwin Encarnacion and Gio Gonzalez, making both of them free agents. However, they did pick up Lurie Garcia's three and a half million dollar option. And we all know Garcia's usefulness of being a super utility player for the Chicago White Sox. And Jim, you wrote about Garcia's option on SoxMachine.com with your Sunday column. But we both felt a couple weeks ago on the podcast when we were talking about the offseason plan project that even though fans and even ourselves can make the case that the White Sox could possibly buy out Garcia and move on because his injury history makes him not easily the most dependable bench player for the Chicago White Sox. But his skill set would give an excellent case for the White Sox to pick up that option. At the end, we ultimately ultimately expected the White Sox to pick up this option, and they have decided to go on that route and keep him for the 2021 season. How do you think the White Sox, and especially Tony La Russa, could possibly use Garcia are we expecting to, that he would be used in the same manner that Rick Renteria did? Or do you think La Russa could have uh, different plans for Louis Garcia? Well, hopefully we'll see less of him. And that just means that he's uh, really just a backup at all positions rather than like a, a part-time starter at one or somebody who has to fill in because somebody gets hurt. Um yeah, last year he he had a good week while Tim Anderson was out with a groin injury. He showed a little bit of pop in right field in that platoon with Adam Engel. Um, so, you know, he he served a purpose for the time he was healthy. He just wasn't healthy. You know, he was he was hurt for uh, nearly uh, three quarters of the season, and that's you know something that's regularly a, a, a problem with him. You know, not necessarily the way he hurt himself, uh, severing the thumb ligament. But he just, you know, whether it's a, a hamstring or a hand injury, wrist injury, just seems like something comes up every year and, and bites him and, and hampers his power. And when he came back for the postseason, his swing was a mess. And I think he's somebody who, especially offensively, uh, in order to really tap into the power and 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 turn into his offensive approach into something resembling average or even sometimes a little bit better than average he needs to be 100 percent. he's not somebody who has the plate discipline to get by when his you know hands and uh everything else aren't cooperating so that's why you know in previous years i'd made arguments against keeping him just because you know his his lack of reliability and, and the way he can easily get thrown off his game made me think that the white Sox could do a bit better if they if they really wanted to uh just but you know having seen like 
Colton Wong get cut by the Cardinals and Brad Hand get cut by, uh, uh, get waived by the Indians and nobody claiming him, I think I would have taken the White Sox uh, cutting or, or, or declining Garcia's $3.5 million option in just a, a, a little bit of a different way. Not necessarily, you, you couldn't necessarily take into account or, or believe that they were uh, cutting him because they thought they could do better with that spot or had aspirations for the corners that they didn't have before. They might have been doing because every dollar counts and they're, they're playing on pinching pennies. So I guess you can look at it either way. Like one is that they like Garcia at $3.5 million more than they like, I don't know, Jock Peterson or something like that, who's more of a platoon bat that fits that lefty role. But uh, I, I could also see it being the case where, you know, they, they're going to spend a little bit. Maybe not going to, you know, like we're talking about our offseason plan project. May not spend 150, but they're going to spend at least a little bit more than they did last year, and more than a lot of other teams are spending, given the uncertainty that both uh, COVID presents and also what COVID allows them to hide behind. Yeah. So right now, as far as the 2021 White Sox roster plans, Louis Garcia is going to be part of it, and I am expecting him to be part of Tony La Russa's bench. And as Jim mentioned. Hopefully, health-wise, he won't have to be used in so many critical spots. Hopefully, Tim Anderson can avoid being on the injured list so Garcia doesn't have to play shortstop. And hopefully, the White Sox find a everyday solution in right field so we don't have to contemplate if the White Sox should go into 2021 with the Lurie Garcia-Adam Engel right field platoon. Um, but we'll see on how the offseason works out for the White Sox. And again, that'll be mostly our conversation soon on this episode. But we have some other items that we have to get to first. And that is the news of LaRusa's coaching staff. So again, Tony LaRusa being hired. And the first thing that he's currently working on is piecing together his coaching staff and trying to figure out which coaches currently in the White Sox clubhouse, obviously not Don Cooper because he was fired, uh, but which of the remaining coaches are worth keeping. But we now know that Nick Capra will not be part of LaRusso's coaching staff with the White Sox as the White Sox have decided to move on from the former director of player development and third base coach. And it, it does make me wonder, Jim, with the remaining coaches, on who is going to stick around. I, I think Joe McEwing... I'm pretty confident in saying that I think McEwing's going to stick around and be part of LaRusso's coaching staff. He may not be the bench coach, Jim. Maybe McEwing moves back to being the third base coach uh, for the White Sox. But you still have Daryl Boston to figure out. Uh, you still have Frank Medicino to figure out. How are you feeling right now about those situations and those options for LaRusso's coaching staff? Are we expecting a pretty big, uh, I should say, maybe heavy turnover for the White Sox coaching staff? Uh, I don't necessarily think so, just because when you look at just the, you know, the normal lieutenants that LaRusso's had over the years, like one was Dave Duncan, who is in the White Sox organization as just a, a general advisor, but he's, you know, he said that he's not going to come out of retirement to be a full-time pitching coach, so you know, Larusa might be more open to yeah you know, since he doesn't have his guy unless he has a really strong opinion about somebody else in another organization. You know this might be the opportunity to bring up uh, you know 
whether it's Matt Zaleski, Everett Tiford, or maybe both the way the Rangers have hired two pitching coaches, maybe you see the two of them. Um, the other guy I thought of when, when Capra was uh, said to be let go was that uh, Dave McKay, uh, one of uh, Larusa's longtime base coaches. He, I think he's been in a few roles, but right now he's he came out of retirement or or he he was part of the Cardinal staff in 2011. He was let go after Larusa retired there, and then when Larusa came to the Diamondbacks, McKay then resurfaced in Arizona. He's the current first base coach of the Diamondbacks, but I do wonder, you know, with Larusa being somewhere else, and if you know working together is really important, if that's the case where you know he can move over to the White Sox if they'll let him, if they'll grant him an interview or. Grant him no interview, I suppose, with the way the White Sox do business. Uh, just, <laughs> just let him go. Um, you know, that's one case where I could see maybe a spot opening up. But you know, look at Joe McEwing and and you know, basically, um, you know, Larusa idolized Joe McEwing when they overlapped in the Cardinals. So I can't imagine him coming into the White Sox organization saying, uh, "I already have a pair of your shoes, so get out." And he does actually have a pair of McEwing's shoes. Like that. That's how much McEwing meant to him as a player. So it's uh, he seems to be hanging around. I think Daryl Boston is the one I kind of don't know about just because, you know, being a first base coach where McKay is and just, uh, you know, being theoretically an outfield coach. But having seen some of the outfielders <laughs> that the White Sox have run out there last few years with Eloy and left and, uh, and Palka and right and so forth that, uh, you know, maybe it's, you know, if they want a fresh voice or somebody who's more along the lines of a Larusa personality that I could see him uh, being let go. But otherwise, you know, given just how long he's been out and how he doesn't really seem to have coaches tied to him anymore, uh, that's one case where I can see, uh, you know, this hiring being one where they wouldn't have to yield uh, the entirety of their staff. And like they, they might with an A.J. Hinch or somebody like that where he'd hire all his own guys. This seems more like uh, they can... You know, not necessarily keep everybody, but allow a lot of like internal promotions to happen if they feel like, you know, in the case of like pitching coach, where these guys actually have what it takes to be a a pitching coach in the 2020s. Yeah, pitching coach is going to be the key hire, right? Especially for where the Chicago White Sox roster is. Somebody that can really help as far as get Dylan Cease back on track and get Dane Dunning and Michael Kopech to be in a place where they could be possibly heavy contributors to the 2021 Chicago White Sox. Because there are some very intriguing arms, whoever the White Sox do decide to hire as pitching coach. Uh, but that, that will be as far as the critical hire. And then we'll see if Larusa decides to, to keep Frank Manichino. I mean, the White Sox did hit really well. Was there anything in that 60-game sample uh, in Mendocino's first season as the hitting coach, Jim, that he can plant his flag and make his case to stick around with La Russa. Well, maybe just his connection with Luis Roberts and you know the tough love approach that he, he gave him in, in Charlotte and then Chicago. He had the uh, super first month, the terrible second month. And then by the time the postseason came around, it seemed like he had found his balance against the plate found his aggressiveness, mode of attack. So, you know, they're still not great when it comes to strikeout-to-walk ratio, and I think some of that walk uh, ratio was actually boosted by Yuan Moncada having uh, COVID-19. That was one of the strange byproducts of his season is that, you know, he didn't have the ability to turn and damage pitches the way he normally did. So sometimes if bats were longer than, uh, went longer than he uh 
than they might have normally because he fouled pitches off that he should have driven or maybe didn't offer pitches he didn't feel like swinging at because he just maybe didn't have uh, it in him to be as aggressive with pitches on the corners. And whatever reason, the, the walk rate bounced back up. So if Makata is actually healthy, that's one number I'm kind of going to be fascinated by is whether uh, you know, having COVID uh, and, and having the limitations that that, uh, um, you know, that the, the aftermath caused, whether that's going to kind of allow him to find some uh, equilibrium with his batting eye or whether, you know, when he's fully healthy again, whether he'll be like the, the Mankata of old, whether he's just really aggressive in the walk rate dives. But if you're looking for a new pitching coach or a, a new hitting coach, I think you'd want to see if you could buoy the, the walk rate and cut down the strikeouts a little bit more. But with the way the White Sox are and, and some of the ways they can go about filling some holes in free agency or trades, there are ways that they can uh, help that category and help some other offensive categories without you know, overhauling the coaching staff for the uh, second time in two years. Yeah, maybe possibly some free agent targets, which we're going to be talking about a lot on this episode as the White Sox 40-man roster is currently at 36 players as the White Sox also reinstated Michael Kopech and Jimmy Lambert. So there's four spots available in the 40-man roster. Yes, there are some Rule 5 guys at the White Sox may have to add to the 40-man roster to protect them, in quotation marks, from the Rule 5 draft, but I am not expecting a lot of activity to be happening in the Rule 5 draft, so it may not be necessary to do that. Um, But after picking up Garcia's option and factoring in arbitration projections, the Chicago White Sox payroll is going to be around 90 to 95 million dollars before they start spending. So depending on how much of a budget Jerry Reinsdorf gives Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, there should be money to spend this offseason despite losing revenue from not having fans in the stands. So how could the White Sox possibly fill out the 40-man roster? Well, after a quick word from our sponsors, Jim and I will take a look at the players that did receive a qualifying offer and determine if it's worthwhile for the White Sox to give up a draft pick to sign them. And also the rest of the list of free agents that will be competing to sign for next on the Sox Machine Podcast. At Acuity Insurance, we believe the things you do for your business every day are nothing short of heroic. And you deserve someone equally heroic to protect them. Like the breaking ground on new construction things. The every box and barcode matters things. And the driving the family business forward things. We put our all into covering your business so you can focus on the things you love most. That's the power of heart. Acuity Insurance. Wholeheartedly for you. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast as we now transition into free agency talk. And hopefully you are still excited as White Sox fans for this upcoming offseason. Yes, there is a lot of unknowns. We don't know, especially in the current market or environment or however you want to describe Major League Baseball, 
or businesses in, in general uh, with the pandemic, with the coronavirus still continuing, it, it's really hard to know which teams are going to be active this offseason. We have launched the Sox Machine free agent pick'em contest. You will see my guesses, and that's what I'm calling them, not predictions this year, guesses, because I did terribly last year, Jim. I only got three out of 20 right. Uh, and uh, you'll you'll be able to read those along with Greg Nixon and Patrick Nolan, and you could also participate as well. But to start off this conversation on what the White Sox could possibly do this offseason as far as targeting free agents, Jim, we did get this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Ed Casey. And Ed was asking, I was so disappointed by the White Sox hiring of Tony La Russa for a variety of reasons. The one silver lining I have seen is the hope that Jerry Reinsdorf may spend on free agency to give La Russa a better chance to succeed. Do you guys think that this may be the case or is this just false hope? So Jim, how do you feel about that hypothetical? Is Jerry Reinsdorf more willing to finally break the piggy bank because Tony La Russa is back as manager? I think it's a glass half full, glass half empty kind of situation, depending on your outlook of how the White Sox are run and, and your faith in Jerry Reinsdorf to help the team more than he hurts it, then I could see it either way. I think, you know, if he's looking to hire his friend and kind of make amends for a four decade old uh, transgression that he regretted, I would think that part of it would have to be like, you're coming on this job and we're going to give you, you know, maybe not every possible resource to win, but by White Sox standards, a lot of resources to win, you know, ones that maybe Rick Renteria didn't get or Renteria only got for maybe one year before deciding that, uh, you know, he had to go. So ultimately, I think I'm fairly bullish about the White Sox ability to add, I think, relative to other teams. They may not, um, you know, blow other teams on the market. They may not pull like a, uh, you know, just they, they. I don't think they'll set the market. I don't think they'll rush out the way they did with Yasmani Grandal and you know make a November signing that uh, you know makes everybody realize like, oh, these guys are serious. I can see their activity maybe showing up more in January and February as demand start lowering and they say like, okay, now we can get in and add three guys when we thought we were only adding two because the prices are low. I think that's generally how I see the White Sox unfolding. They'll be aggressive, but relatively speaking and relatively maybe just good enough this uh, this crazy winner i am going to slightly disagree with you about that last point about january and february yes i do expect the white Sox to be more active jim after christmas but i could see them picking out one target one guy that everyone involved larusa Kenny Williams, Rick Hahn, and Jerry Reinsdorf want. And they go out and make that signing shortly after Thanksgiving. I'm not particularly sure on who that target could possibly be, but it really did seem like last year that they used the GM meetings, Kenny and Rick, to sneak out of the meetings and go meet with Yasmani Grandal in person. This was really smart on their end. And, and make a very aggressive offer because they knew there would be some significant interest from other teams competing against them to, to sign Grandal. 
And they did not hesitate and they made the best offer possible. And it was the best offer that Grandal had. I, I do see that happening again this offseason, Jim. So, like, I guess we can start going into some names. Like, do you think it'll be for, like, the top right fielder in the class or one of the top pitchers in the class? Like, that kind of statement signing? Is that what you're thinking? Not, no. I'm thinking, like, Michael Brantley. Okay. I think there will be some significant interest in Michael Brantley, especially the way that he performed this postseason. And we don't know the situation, right? And that's the great unknown that I think Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Players Association, they really need to figure out very quickly here on are we having a designated hitter in the National League in 2021? Because if you are, that's great news for Brantley and Marcel Azuna or even like Nelson Cruz because their market expands, right? But I think that if all four of them agree that they really want someone like Michael Brantley, they'll be aggressive and sign Michael Brantley in November. Get us excited thinking that, all right, when is the next domino going to fall? And White Sox fans and the media like are going to have to wait a month plus before we see the additional dominoes fall. But uh, I guess this is my one prediction that I, I, and it could be Michael Brantley, it could be anybody, but I, I do think the White Sox, for at least one player, will jump the market and try to sign that player very much in the same manner that they did last year with Grundahl. Yeah, I've seen, you know, I'm looking at the spreadsheets, the uh, the offseason plan project tracker, and Brantley was a yeah, fairly popular. I'm looking at, I'm just counting the, the rankings. 23 of the 98 offseason plans I had counted. I have to catch up a little bit uh, after this weekend, but fairly popular. The uh, I think he has to be DH though, right? Or DH slash left field with right. you know, rotating with uh, Eloy Jimenez and left. Like right field is not a possibility. So that's, I think, my one reservation with Brantley is that if they sign him, I really want to be for those two spots and not a right field solution. No, absolutely. I'm I'm in the same boat that Brantley would be DH slash left field. And who knows? Maybe LaRusa would get tired of watching Aloy Jimenez struggle so much in left field that in a hypothetical situation, if Michael Brantley does sign with the White Sox, Brantley may get fifty percent of the playing time in left field. Uh wouldn't that be odd? And uh Jimenez gets more time as the uh as the DH, but as far as on how the White Sox play this market out, I do think that you're right in the grand sense that most of the activity is going to be happening after Christmas. So for you, for those that are listening right now, hearing that and mentally be like, all right, I'm checking out. I'll, I'll check back in after New Year's and see where the White Sox are. I don't think that's a bad idea as far as following what's going on with the White Sox. But if you are interested on how the entire offseason is playing out in Major League Baseball. You'll obviously be paying attention to what is rumored on Twitter and other social media channels and MLB trade rumors with the rest of us. But I don't think in this particular market, Jim, that is not necessarily a bad idea. The White Sox do wait out and see who is left in January. Because I think, and it's still not official, it will be official shortly, but the transition of power... In Queens with Steve Cohen now buying the New York Mets. 
there is a lot of chatter, Jim, that makes it sound like Cohen is going to come out and he's going to spend a lot of money. He should. And and he should. I think he kind of has to in order to make that Mets team as good as he wants it to be, especially be able to compete in that New York market uh, with the Yankees. But if the White Sox wait until January and there are players that are not on the Mets' radar that these players are getting low bid, then the White Sox, with their not-so-mighty financial spending habits, could come in and you know outbid teams for some guys that could pr- provide value to them in 2021. Yeah, I think that's, you know, Marcus Stroman was a very popular figure in the off-season plan project. Looking at right now, we have about nearly half of the plans included Marcus Stroman and the contracts ranged wildly just because he opted out for the season. So nobody really knows whether he'll, he'll be able to get five years or whether he'll have to settle for like a make good contract of some kind. But uh, that's one case where, you know, given that he opted out from the Mets and kind of left them in the lurch a little bit, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's for, you know, it's, it's bad news if you're a Mets fan, if you're a Mets front office, but it's kind of fun in terms of, you know, when it comes to service time manipulation, like the player finally getting the upper hand on a team and saying, uh, I'm not going to, uh, I'm just going to go into free agency basically a year early in terms of the career and wear and tear on my arm. So it was kind of, uh, interesting to see it happen in that way. But, you know, given that he left the Mets, uh, hanging a little bit and uh you know there might be some animosity there that maybe that's one picture that the Mets money really won't have anything to do with well speaking of Marcus Stroman he is one of six players that received a qualifying offer which the qualifying offer this offseason is 18.9 million dollars some of the names are not a surprise so again Marcus Stroman received a qualifying offer from the New York Mets. Trevor Bauer received one with the Cincinnati Reds. George Springer received one with the Houston Astros. And of course, JT Realmuto received one from the Philadelphia Phillies. Two other players also received a qualifying offer. One, a little bit of a surprise, Jim, but maybe not really. The other one, pretty shocking. The New York Yankees offered DJ LeMayhew a qualifying offer I do find that a little bit surprising because I don't know if LeMahieu will sign for more than $18.9 million per season. Like if he is trying to maximize his single season pay, uh, I don't think he can do better than $18.9 million in this particular market. So it might be worthwhile for him to sign that and then test free agency uh, next year unless he and the New York Yankees can work out some type of long-term contract to keep LeMahieu in the Bronx. And and I I do think that will happen uh, between the both parties. And I think it should happen because he's been very valuable to the Yankees. But the shocker is starting pitcher Kevin Gaussman, who got a qualifying offer from the San Francisco Giants. Now, there's some early speculation that the Giants are interested in a longer deal with him. Mm -hmm. But what do you make of that qualifying offer? Yeah, that kind of, yeah, I've been reading about Gaussman when trying to just to figure out, you know, when when establishing, I, oh, I came up when I was looking up the the bargain starters from last year, writing about Gio Gonzalez and how the White Sox addressed their second starter. And then looking at Gossman and looking at the way he, uh, you know, how the Giants came about signing him and then reading about uh, how a season went and what they're planning on doing. And there seemed to be speculation then, you know, weeks before the qualifying offer that they'd 
we're interested in working something out and and uh, Gosman might be also interested in doing the same. So it kind of reminds me of Jose Abreu with the White Sox in which yeah, the White Sox offered Abreu the uh, qualifying offer and it seemed like it was no-brainer for him to take it. And then they ended up working extension and reworking the entire deal and so it didn't really matter. And I can see that being the same thing where it's just a formality that kind of... Uh, prevents teams from swooping in with like an aggressive offer uh, that might be too aggressive for them uh, with the draft pick compensation hovering over him. Uh, that should prevent uh, teams or at least uh, dissuade teams thinking they're going to get a great deal on him and probably just you know, buys them a little bit more time to work out you know certain numbers. And you know, I imagine that's something if they're both interested, probably happens sooner rather than later, but with, with traffic compensation hanging over him and, uh, he's probably like the, you know, has the biggest swing of outcomes based on how he pitched last year and how he pitched several years before that uh, good luck trying to figure out what he's going to make with no compensation. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, with you know a team having to give up their second best draft pick, that's, I think, uh, makes it a bit tougher for other teams to really be aggressive about him. And maybe that makes it easier for the Giants to find a deal they like and Gosman will find one that he's, fine with yeah the Giants last year they did sign I think they gave the qualifying offer to Will Smith and he signed with the Atlanta Braves and Madison Bumgarner which of course Arizona signed Bumgarner so the the Giants picked up two extra draft picks so I I, I think though they want to keep Gaussman the the thing about Gaussman I was was wondering if he would be a target for the White Sox pre-qualifying offer but after the qualifying offer, I just don't think the White Sox would be willing to give up a second round pick to sign him. How do you feel about that possibility? Yeah, not for a guy like him, uh, especially, you know, if the Giants are using this as a way to, and, and, you know, who knows, maybe Gossman accepts it, you know, and it's just, they, they, he does that to work towards a, you know, a three-year deal. Um, but yeah, if he were, say, like, had no interest in signing with the Giants. I think that's probably a tougher sell, you know, having draft pick compensation attached to a pitcher like him versus like say Stroman or Bauer or like one of the, the, the arms who have proven it for a longer amount of time. Right. Uh, it kind of feels now like a Jake Odorizzi situation from last year with the Minnesota twins that very likely Gaussman is going to accept this with the San Francisco Giants. Cause I doubt he was going to make $18.9 million in the open market with any team uh, this particular mm -hmm. offseason. Um, but for the rest of the qualifying offer class, uh, maybe not so much LeMayhew, but Trevor Bauer, George Springer, JT Realmuto, and Marcus Stroman. Any concerns about the White Sox possibly having to forfeit a second-round pick to sign any of those players, Jim? Uh, like, Stroman is one that came up and... and uh, you know, we, we talked about him and, and he also came up because of uh, some Twitter liking he did. And I'm looking for the, uh, I lost my Patreon page uh, temporarily, but some of you, you're getting questions about just, you know, whether Tony La Russa, you know, just his general crotchety demeanor and reputation, whether that would precede him and dissuade players from, uh, from signing with the White Sox. And he would be one where, you know, that might be put to the test a little bit just because, you know, Stroman was on record. Oh, from uh, questions from Elliot Burrell, he asked, what will be the impact in free agency of the TLR hiring? Are there players that might want to play for him or will he scare talent, scare away talent, even if the Sox offer the most money? And I think in this, uh, 
this climate, I think the Sox offering the most money will actually do pretty well because I think the most money will be hard to find for a lot of players and, and, and certain numbers I think are going to be paramount for both players and the MLBPA just in order to try to preserve uh, the gains that they they have made or the gains that are at, at the risk of slipping away. But case of Stroman, he's somebody who um, I think this will come into, I think, uh, come into focus or maybe a, bit, a little bit clearer after the pitching coach hire is made. Because I think that's really like a guy like Stroman or a guy like Trevor Bauer, who's another guy who might be a little bit uh, too idiosyncratic and just a handful for a guy like Larusa, who doesn't necessarily care for player empowerment. And yeah, I could see both of those guys not liking Larusa, but I could see both of them saying, well, you have these new guys, you have let's just use Lesky and Tiford, for example, since we know them. Like, well, let me talk to those guys. Let me see what this is about. Let me, uh, you know, here's what, you know, or like Rick Hahn can say, here's what uh, uh, Zaleski and Tiford have presented in terms of ideas to help you get better. Here's what we're doing. Uh, Tony La Russa has softened his stances a little bit. We're here to win. You can help us win. I, I think there's a way to present a pitch for a guy like Stroman. And I think Stroman is somebody who, uh, you know, does let his emotions get a little bit, uh, you know, he has flared up on Twitter a little bit, then deleted tweets. So I think, uh, you can't necessarily, uh, trust his, um, his reactions, uh, in the moment as something he really wants to let hanging over some proceedings just because, uh, you know, it costs him money. So uh, if the White Sox want to pay somebody like him or somebody like Bauer, I think they'll try to do their best to soften, uh, LaRusa's reputation, but hopefully, you know, LaRusa, given his track record and given uh, the White Sox what they want to do, what they accomplished last year, hopefully, you know, they'll be. I think probably the key is for a guy like Stroman and such and these qualifying offer guys present like a strength in numbers case. Like, we're not just signing you, we're signing you plus here are other targets or here's other ideas we have. Uh, you're a big part of it. Uh, let us know if you're interested. Like, I think that's kind of going to be the approach. So I think with the qualifying offer guys, it's going to be tough just because um, the White Sox don't like spending that much and some of the guys are anti larusa ish based on the way they play, but also they, they're competitors. Uh, LaRusa is a competitor. I think part of his strength is that he's very much a competitor both uh, against other teams and uh, with his own players. Like He likes challenging his players and he's not afraid to get on the wrong side in order to do what's best for the team. So I can see it, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the question is whether nine years off is too much, but it's a case where it's possible to sell these uh, qualifying offer guys on him, but it's going to take a pitching coach hire and I think a little bit more <laughs> groundwork in order to uh, meet them in the middle somewhere. All right, so let's get our speculation caps on. The favorite part of any type of sports podcast or sports talk radio show, what could be the possibility? What, who could the White Sox possibly target this upcoming offseason? Now, I have done kind of three different offseason plan projects. I say kind of because my $150 million budget is just signing George Springer uh, on top of what I planned for the $135 million. And then my $120 million budget uh, in the case that the White Sox do decide to slash a little bit of payroll uh, after not having any revenue uh, this previous season, uh, which has been my irrational fear that could be rational depending on how the White Sox operate. But Jim, I'd like to hear from you, man. 
looking at the official list as far as all of the free agents that are out there, who are you interested for the White Sox to target and sign this offseason? Well, since you mentioned him, I'll start with Brantley, who I think makes a lot of sense for what the White Sox need. Like a DH who can stand in the outfield. Like if it you know happens to be the case where Eloy gets hurt, you can slide Brantley in there, no problem. You can, you know, he's not great, but you can at least play him out there. You can uh you know have other bats to to occupy a DH to kind of rotate them in and out. He's lefty, he doesn't strike out much, he can hit for a little bit of pop. Uh, balances the lineup, uh, reduces their uh, plate discipline issue. So that seems to, to to be one signing that can help in a lot of different ways for a decent price. Uh, along the same lines, like I, I still like the idea, and he's floated around for a few winters now, is Jock Peterson, uh, just because he's you know, not an everyday center fielder, but you can throw him in right. You can have Adam Angle, who looks, you know, I think he's, done wonders for himself over the last, uh, well, the last full season in 2019 and then the uh, uh, partial season of 2020, just bolstering the idea that he can play against lefties. Like, you could roll him out there. Maybe not like, he's not going to be like a, a lefty killer, but he can hit them and then you throw in his defense and he's an average to above average player against uh, left-handed pitching. So I think that's a good platoon there with the two of them. And some center field depth, you know, being able to rotate guys in and out around the outfield. Um, you can have a really good defensive outfielder left to right uh, if you have Peterson, uh, Luis Robert, and Angle. So I think he makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, the, the idea of having lefties who can uh, provide, you know, some some help in the play discipline and power issue. So I think those are the two guys offensively that make the most sense in, in you know, Springer, I think, you know, makes more sense than anybody. But if you're looking for the White Sox to sign multiples, uh, those are the two position players I find. Should I stop there and, and separate pitchers or should I continue on to pitchers? Well, yeah, let's talk about pitching. Who do you like as far as in the, the pitching class? And maybe before you single out, I think the key question is, what would be the best strategy for the White Sox? Sign one stud starting pitcher to give yourself the best trio possible to pair with Giolito and Keuchel and then try to figure out the last two spots between Cease, Dunning, Kopech, and and maybe Lopez? Or do you want to try to build up as much depth as possible in the starting rotation and possibly sign two guys? I would rather sign the one good pitcher. Um, just because looking at last year when I was reviewing the, the decisions with Keuchel and Gonzalez, um, just seeing that, you know, with Keuchel uh, in the tier of Keuchel-like pitchers, when we were talking about Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg and Bumgarner and uh, Zach Wheeler and uh, who am I? Oh, uh, Hyunjin Ryu. Uh, just that, that echelon of starter, like four of those six guys had great seasons. <laughs> you know, but all of them, or four of those six guys would have been great. Bumgarner and... Uh, well, Strasburg was hurt and Bumgarner might have been hurt or might have been more hurt than he let on. He was missing a few ticks of velocity. So who knows whether they have, would have worked out differently in like a different um, you know, case, you know, just like the the butterfly effect with they sign with a different team. Do, do they get the same injuries? Um, but, you know, just the talent there is evident enough that, you know, there's a lot of room for error and still getting acceptable seasons. And in the case of the four pitchers who succeeded, they were very good. Like they, were, they didn't need that error. They delivered what they're supposed to. And then when you look at the Gonzalez tier, it's just basically a crapshoot. You know, Gonzalez wasn't, uh, he wasn't good, but most of the pitchers who were 
signed for that amount weren't good. And there's no real rhyme or reason for the guys who succeeded, aside from maybe Gossman, who has been, you know, he's shown flashes of quality in the past, but just hadn't put it together until with the Giants last year. But, you know, looking at those starters, like Gossman was the one guy who I thought was like a decent bridge between high price starters like Bauer and Stroman and then like the rest, which I think the rest would be uh, led by Jose Quintana. Uh, Gosman was one guy with like the upside, I think, to maybe break into that top three starter. With with a guy like Quintana, maybe you're looking at him as a third, but you're hoping Dylan Cease passes him. So that's where I, I think uh, the idea is that I don't want to count on Cease or Lopez or Dunning or Kopech passing a guy to be a third starter in game three. Like if it happens because they're great, cool. But I just don't want to have to bank on that given how much, well, what in Cease's case, like how much he struggled to develop uh, both his uh, mechanics and his pitch design with Lopez, you know, finding a second pitch with Kopech, his layoff. Like, I don't want to count on any of those good outcomes. I want them to just harness their talent and, and leap over already good pitchers. So I think I'd rather spend for uh, a quality starter in that case. The one guy uh, who came out recently or, or, or came out as a possibility recently, uh, Joel Sherman, the New York Post, uh, r- reported that uh, Tomoyuki Sagano, who is... Uh, the top Japanese pitcher eligible this year uh, might be up for posting, which would be a case where he might be uh, one of those kind of uh, like in the Gossman area where um, you wouldn't necessarily count on him being your third best pitcher, but has the upside or at least uh, you know, depending on you know what he's bringing, uh, you know, might be somebody you can pencil in for a game three and then feel pretty good about that. So that's a direction you would go? Maybe. Like, he's kind of more like uh, in the Kenta Maeda line in terms of like a fastball. It's not terribly impressive, but just knows how to, uh, you know, he's got control and, and knows how to work the ball. Like, you know, just, he can work a fastball. You know, he's not like an Otani type who throws in the high 90s. So that's the one case where I wouldn't want to bank. Like, I don't feel, I wouldn't feel great about it. Um, but that's, I, I think he's just a little bit more interesting than, say, like Taiwan Walker or... Um, like, you know, James Paxton, I think, has hurt a bit too much. I think he's a cut above them. And Quintana, I think I think the White Sox have already seen the best of him. So that's why I don't want to go back to him thinking that he's going to be that third starter if he's really like a fourth or fifth at this point in his career. What do you think about Masahiro Tanaka? Well, I, I like the idea until I saw that he might be heading back to Japan. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's one where it kind of like... And, and for a serious amount of money. Right. Like, what was it, 20 to 25 million? Yeah. That's a lot of money. I don't know if he gets that this offseason. But I like him. Yeah. So I think he might, too, fit in that, like, uh, that uh, tier below Bauer and Strom in terms of uh, feeling pretty good about him, even if, uh, you know, his he, he might be a little bit past his prime. There are going to be White Sox fans, Jim. That will say, if the White Sox do not sign Trevor Bauer or Marcus Stroman, this offseason is a failure. Do you feel that way? Uh, not necessarily, um, just because they're still spending a do, still other ways to improve. I think they need to get a starter of some kind. Um, and, and one thing I'll be fascinated by this winter is when it comes to, like seeing Brad Hand, uh, getting waived by the Indians uh, because he could make $10 million in arbitration even though he's an all-star closer. Seeing him get waived and seeing no team claim him makes me think like there could be an opportunity for some trades to be struck um, 
just by teams looking to ditch a good pitcher who's being paid more than they like and might be willing to throw in some money <laughs> to make it happen. So, you know, it's not, you know, maybe it's not necessarily like paying, you know, you know, getting a pitcher for only money the way free agency works. But I think it could be the case where there are other ways to get compelling pitchers. And I think I'll you know, probably be looking at that when I review the offseason plan project spreadsheet and then try to uh, you know, keep an eye on MLB trade rumors and such to see which teams are really, uh, you know, closing up the pocketbooks and just uh, really looking like they're signaling they're not going to spend anything and saying, like, how can you help that? <laughs> I think there are different ways to get pitching. I think when if you're looking at two guys and uh, two guys who are idiosyncratic, um, you know, might have their own list of demands, might uh, be a hard sell just to get to a, you know, like when it comes to the White Sox, uh, traditional old schoolish team. I think you can definitely say they're old school now with Larusa there, even if they do make progressive moves and pitching coach, they still have the reputation of not being like forward thinking, like helping players get better. They still have to prove that. Uh, it's a case where you can't bank on luring those guys. I think they have to make a good effort to do so, but there are other ways to improve pitchers and spend money. Even if they don't get Bauer and Stroman or I should say, or Stroman. Then we'll leave it here. Before we start answering some P.O. Sox questions, what are the odds? What would you put the odds at, I should say, that the White Sox sign a former Larusa player, someone that he's managed in the past, say Adam Wainwright or Yadier Molina this offseason? Well, Wainwright could be interesting just because, you know, he's somebody who. Still a good pitcher. You know, he's going to be 39 next year. Or is he 39 already? Let's see. Yeah, just uh, yeah, turned 39 in August. So, again, not somebody you'd want to count on being your third best starter. I think he's a case where, um, you know, given that he's kind of been working on a year-to-year contract arrangement with the Cardinals, who are the, the only uh, major league team he's pitched for. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at his salary history. He made a... Uh, yeah, two eight million dollars uh, with incentives in 2019. Made five million dollars last year. So, if he signed as like a secondary starter, like he's the depth piece, um, after acquiring a better pitcher, that would be tremendous. <laughs> I guess he couldn't rule it out. I think Molina just at this point, yeah, Molina seems like he's looking for more playing time, looking to burnish uh, what could be a, a Hall of Fame career. And I don't know if the White Sox want to offer that or promise that. Um, I, I don't dislike him as a player. I think his his uh, ability to control the running game, he still has some attributes. But if he's looking for playing time and, and Grandal looks like the guy who's going to be getting the playing time, I'm not sure that's a battle the White Sox want to take on. Yeah, I, I agree with you with Adam Wainwright. Like, I wouldn't be shocked. I would not be shocked, Jim, if the White Sox sign Adam Wainwright. There's a part of me that's expecting them to sign hmm. Adam Wainwright. And is there a signing that would make you roll your eyes and say, that is so White Sox this offseason? Well, I think a lot of them are in a way. Like, it's, it's tough when you look at the amount of uh, just iffy players on the free agent market. It's not really a star-studded free agency. There are some good players like, you know, Bauer's great. Um, you know, Stroman's good. Springer's pretty good you know i think as long as you feel good about him succeeding outside of houston outside the whole trash can thing and just he's had a couple minor injuries here and there but he's pretty good you know and and when he's healthy great 
So, you know, there's a lot there to like uh, for those players. But then when you look at the second tier, like, um, like you know, I saw Tommy Lastella pop up a lot just because he's lefties and infield can work around. But like, he's all right, but he can also just kind of disappear and not be really a factor. And they already have Garcia. So if, if they feel like he's ambitious, yeah. Like if they sign Carlos Santana for a DH spot, I think that would make me feel like, oh no, they just, you know, a guy who's more homers and doubles hits under 200. Like, oh, that's seen that happen before. That feels kind of a little bit uh, White Sox-ish. Um, but I'm hoping that with the way the rest of the White, White Sox roster is built, you know, like Nick Marcakis might be another guy who just like feels a bit past his prime. You know, there are some other guys who just you, you don't like just by looking at them or feel like they're White Sox moves of the past. Nelson Cruz, I think, would be maybe the most White Sox-ish one. Uh, <laughs> but except he is actually still good. So I don't, that would make me roll my eyes. It would be very White Sox-ish, uh, especially since he's righty and they're looking for lefties and they have better options maybe for lefties in that spot. But he's also good enough to where it might work. So I think there's enough fluctuation going on with a new manager, with uh, uh, new pitching coaches to where I'm, I'm waiting to see how the new staff defines a new area, a new era of uh, a very white Sox signing. Yeah, that's a good point. It could change as far as the definition of a very white Sox signing, but I'm hoping that there is some activity for the White Sox. Again, I'm not expecting a lot of activity right away for the White Sox. I do think that they will make some type of signing in the month of November to get in front of the market. But most of the activity, I agree with Jim, is going to happen after Christmas for the Chicago White Sox. So we're going to have some dead periods uh, to talk about as far as the Chicago White Sox, uh, other than how they fill out their coaching staff. And there'll be some information and news here and there. But as far as the headline news, uh, we may get something this month, and then we may have to wait for a little bit longer as far as in the off season. And we'll see if any other team decides to step up other than the New York Mets and make any big splashes in free agency as well. And that will give you guys an opportunity to submit your Sox Machine free agent pick'em contest, which is live right now. You have until Friday, November 6th to submit your guess, your guesses. There are 20 free agents that we have, and uh, you just got to pick the team that you think that free agent will sign with. And whoever has the most correct guesses at the end will win a $50 gift card to Fanatics. Get yourself some pretty sweet White Sox gear for the 2021 season. So again, you can find as far as that pick'em contest on SoxMachine.com. Well, our fans, listeners, you guys had plenty of questions for us. So let's tackle those next in P.O. Sox. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. 
Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting at us at Socks Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And this week's mailbag, we got so many questions this week. And they all come from our Patreon supporters. So as always, thank you guys so much for your continued support of Sox Machine. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, will any success the White Sox have this season be used as vindication of the decision to hire Tony La Russa? I want the White Sox to do well. I don't want this botched hiring job to be seen as a success, though. Well, I, I think the good news here is that Larusa is coming aboard after a an already successful season. Like, say, if he joined where the White Sox were last year, where they hadn't yet won, but they signed Grandal and they signed Keuchel, and they then they you know uh, they had Larusa on board as well. But just like you weren't happy about Larusa, but you're happy about. Uh, Grandal and Keuchel, and then you know, having Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal coming up, then you could see a case where, like, yeah, Renteria done great with that roster too. You know, Larusa is getting a lot of credit, but you know, Larusa Renteria didn't have nearly as much to play with. Anybody could have managed this roster. Who knows how it would have worked out? But with you know Renteria raising the standards, or at least the White Sox raising their standards under Renteria, you know, ninety-four one pace over one hundred and sixty-two games postseason spot. Uh, you know, the standards are higher. And so if the White Sox only win like 85 games, which they hadn't won under Renteria, but you know, theoretically, like he's raised those standards to that level, um, you know, that'd be disappointing. And, uh, you know, if, if they barely uh, made it into the second wildcard spot and, and lost in the uh, wildcard game, that'd be disappointing. So uh, I don't think uh, any success will be... Uh, beneficial to LaRusso or at least will be credited to him. I think he's going to be tasked with helping the White Sox get further, you know, getting into the second round, winning 94 games for real, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, finishing either second in the central or first, um, you know, getting a, uh, you know, no longer being uh, behind the Indians and the twins. I think there are a lot of ways for LaRusso to improve, but I think he's going to have to improve in one or multiple ways in order to get that kind of credit. And uh, had a related, related question from Chef Eric, who asked, uh, you know, what are the expectations going to be uh, from the front office for LaRusso? Are they going to be aggressive and, and, and uh, decide whether one year or two years, whether it's working out or will, whether it'll be four or five years? And uh, I think that's going to be the big thing uh, big thing hovering over it. Like if they get off to a rough start, if they you know, say a, get off to like a 20 and 30 start and it's not going well and Larusa is clashing with players and everybody is grumpy and, you know, say if fans are allowed in and the, the gates disappointing and the ratings are disappointing, can Reinsdorf bring himself to fire Larusa? You know, maybe not in season. I think that's probably unreasonable to, to ask, but, you know, after one season, just like this, this was a disaster. You know, are they prepared to say that is Reinsdorf? I guess it's, I shouldn't say they. <laughs> is, is Reinsdorf prepared to say that? I'm not convinced he is. So I think that's going to be the, the iffy thing. I can see it succeeding. I can see the team being good enough to where Larusa doesn't matter. I can see Larusa having some some attributes that help the White Sox a little bit. But, 
I think the, the, the big risk here is if it goes belly up. Um, how are the White Sox going to react? How is Reinsdorf going to react? Is he going to blame everybody else but his, his favorite guy? <laughs> and or, or other heads going to roll besides Larusa's. That's going to be the uh, the tricky part about all this and, and the little bit of a trap the White Sox have sent for themselves. Well, Andrew and Chef Eric, thank you so much for your questions. Our next question comes from Kevin Shannon. And Kevin's asking, Larusa said he had no one specific for pitching coach, but at this point, is there any hope left the new pitching coach won't be an internal hire. I would say, you know, I would say it's not a zero percent chance. I'd maybe put it like it's a. I feel like it's, you know, probably two out of three chance that the hires will be internal. It seems like Zaleski and or Tiford has been groomed for the spot, and I'm curious when it comes to like Tiford who pitched in the majors, whereas Zaleski didn't. Zaleski, um, He's, he's a triple-A starter and kind of a rotation filler, and I think I, I've probably seen him start more games than any other pitcher, I think, in baseball you know that I've experienced, like even like Mark Burley. I think I may have seen more Matt Zaleski starts in person than Mark Burley starts, just how it worked out. <laughs> and it was always, uh, it was always uh, disappointing because he wasn't the guy you wanted to see, but he's also like not terrible. <laughs> he just happened to throw like the most relaxed 86 miles per hour you'd ever seen. And, uh, yeah, I just wonder, you know, when it comes to like the major league pitching coach job, whether, you know, they would go with a guy with major league experience like Tiford over, uh, somebody like Zaleski. Although, you know, with pitching coaches, we have seen it with other organizations going to the college ranks that, uh, maybe not so much a thing anymore. Maybe for managers, they need to play, but for pitching coaches, they don't have to. So I would assume based on, how they've been groomed for the roles they've occupied, that it seems like Zaleski would be the guy over Tiford, but one of those two seem like the most likely. Maybe Larusa has a guy, but just given that Duncan isn't going to be doing it, and given that he hasn't really been involved in staff decisions, I don't know if he, he has any pets. Uh, like they would hire, like a he would feel adamant, or the White Sox would feel adamant, and, and wouldn't be pushed to hire a guy like Ruben Niebla from. Uh, Cleveland's pitching machine. I, I think I wouldn't mind seeing the White Sox do that if they hired a Hinch or a Sandy Alomar Jr. But if things are the way they are, it seems highly likely that uh, the, the the coach will be one of the guys they would have presented to an A.J. Hinch as a possibility. Larusa did say that he has gotten some text messages from guys around the league about the pitching coach opening. Yeah, <laughs> So I'm, I, I feel like it is going to be an external hire for the White Sox hmm. with their new pitching coach. I kind of took that as don't take it as a foregone conclusion, but yeah, we're, we're st- staying internally. That's, I guess, you know, how, talking about like a very White Sox move, that strikes me as like, I mean, they made this big show about hiring externally and being too insular with uh, the managerial hire and they hired Larusa because Ryan's were flying too. So I just don't trust them to, I'm, I'm back to not trusting them about hiring externally. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I guess I'm still holding out hope Kevin, that it will be an external hire, but we shall see. But thank you so much, Kevin, for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor and Mark is asking, is the state of the Chicago White Sox franchise in a better place today? than it was on October 2nd? I would say no. Um, 
I would say that the LaRusso hire is a clear step back, not necessarily because he's a lesser manager than Renteria, just because it it's because he might be it because there's there are reasons to believe this might be a disaster. And it shows that the White Sox chain of command is still very tangled. It's been more tangled in the past, like with Ozzie Gian and Paul Canerco. There are all sorts of people who reported to different people. Um, but this just shows that like, even their carefully laid plans can be dismantled by somebody hiring um, emotionally. Uh, with no process behind it. And, and Rick Hahn might want to say there's no narrative behind it, but there's a narrative. Like, he's not the one to determine that. Uh, it's just, there, there are 40 years of history here that determine that, and he can't he can't wish it away. Uh, I can say, though, that I think uh, this could be the case where it's one step back, but they can take two steps forward if they make a good or encouraging pitching coach hiring. I think time will tell whether it's a good hiring, but I think there's at least reasons to believe that their hiring and how they describe the hiring for pitching coach or pitching coaches can be it can be called encouraging, can be chalked up with that in terms of like first guessing how we know it when the decision was made. Uh, and then after that, uh, whether they want to spend for a guy like Larusa to kind of follow that thread, uh, you know, whether... Hiring a guy like Larusa out of retirement means that they want to give him the best team possible. Ultimately, it could be two steps forward after that first step back. So I'm not like I'm not saying uh, that this hiring spells doom. <laughs> I think there's reason it could foreshadow doom, and we could be saying like, oh man, like this is the second golden era that <laughs> Jerry Reinsdorf has completely derailed because of his own personal. Uh, whims and preferences and beliefs uh, versus what the entire organization had been building for him. But uh, there is enough reason, you know, uh, based on other progress in the organization, the desire, previously stated desire to not be insular with their hires and their ability to spend and, and having a pretty healthy bottom line because uh, of their established ownership and their improving TV ratings and just how... Uh, how they weren't counting on great attendance uh, for their future projections that they could be able to spend. And so uh, I would say that this is still a work in progress and I guess we'll find out more by the end of the year or, you know, maybe it sends into January or uh, February. Well, our next Patreon question, or I should say PO Sox question from one of our Patreon supporters. It's a great segue from this topic and it comes from Rob Liedemann. And Rob is asking, am I resigned to saying that's so White Sox until Jerry Reinsdorf finally punts the bucket? Yeah, I, I think so. Just because <laughs> it's like, it's not necessarily harmful um, or um, I would say like malignant <laughs> or toxic. Uh, I think that so White Sox can, uh, can cover a lot of different ground. I think that can, like, that's so White Sox, you know, it's, um, you know, hiring people they know. It's it's uh, hiring, like, you know, or signing, like, an Edwin Encarnacion, like, you know, just signing a, a bad DH, or it could be uh, trading international money. Like, there's a lot of, like, that's so White Sox, I think, stem from ownership weirdness. And uh, I, I think we've seen it be more harmful in other organizations. I, I will say, like, the one... 
one healthy thing about the White Sox is that, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf not talking to anybody besides Bob Nightingale means that the White Sox don't really trash anybody, <laughs> like in, either inside the organization or outside the organization the way they used to, the way they did under Ke- Kenny Williams at his most combative uh, uh, like stages in his GM career. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the Mets with the Wilpons, how the Wilpons like meddled with uh, players playing while they're injured and uh, lineup cards and uh, trashing guys when they're in the with the team, when they're outside the team, uh, not setting a budget for their GM. <laughs> and then uh, like, like the, the thing with the Steve Cohen, uh, uh, taking over the Mets, you, you've seen a lot of writers trashing the Wilpons the way they might not have wanted to trash the Wilpons when they needed at least some kind of access or uh, didn't want to be uh, completely written out of being able to talk to play, uh, people or uh, players they needed to talk to. But now that the Wilpons are out, all sorts of stories are coming out from them that show like a more harmful brand of that so blank. But then again, with Cohen taking over, if Cohen is a very aggressive spender and erases a lot of the Metsness that they're known for, then I think maybe uh, the White Sox will have a more team-specific stink or weirdness that uh, other teams really don't have that kind of brand of. Like maybe the Indians, maybe the Pirates, like just their... I think the Indians and Pirates are more of a a stinginess uh, than just idiosyncratic. Uh, kind of weirdness, kind of built on personal hangups. But uh, yeah, I think the White Sox might have the, uh, the the market cornered on that now that the Wilpons are gone. Well, Rob and Mark, thank you so much for your questions. Our next set of... And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week in P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to answer... In an upcoming Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. And you can also help support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And I just want to reiterate how much your support means to us, especially with the holidays coming up and with the 2020 Major League Baseball season ending. Our work on Sox Machine does not stop. And we're going to try to do our very best to entertain you no matter how fast, busy, or deadly slow this offseason possibly could be for the Chicago White Sox. And your continued support helps make that happen. And if you don't support us on patreon.com slash machine, you can do so. We have several different tiers that you can sign up for. Uh, those tiers also give you the opportunity to get some Sox Machine swag, so pretty cool. Uh, and you also get an opportunity, at least with the podcast, to get an ad-free version of the show and also a uh, extended version of P.O. Sox. Uh, where we get to answer more P.O. Sox questions for our Patreon supporters. And our Patreon supporters also get an opportunity when we have guests of the show to ask them questions and they get to hear those segments in their own version of the podcast. So if you enjoy our work and you want more or if you want to help support us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. Any other marketing news, Jim, or site news that our fans and listeners should know about? Uh, just, we'll be going through the off-season plan project. Thank you for everybody. Thank you to everybody who participated in it. More than 100 plans, and it's just great to have all the ideas and 
all the sentiment in one place to be able to see just who people like, who people don't, uh, just what expectations are. That's, so that that's great. Uh, I have a couple of coffee mugs left at the $10 tier. I'll be working on a new premium gift after that. And then just one more shout out to little Jimmy, uh, Jim Osborne and his, uh, his family. I, I hope that, uh, you know, just, you know, our condolences and just hope everything goes as well as it possibly can. It just, it's <laughs> never an easy time. It's not an easy time now for family to gather. And it's just, it's rough. And uh, we're going to feel his loss. I know they're going to feel his loss more and we'll miss him. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.